Welcome. You found Out of the Ordinary, the show that helps you grow a daily life that matters. I'm Christy Purifoy. And I am Lisa Jo Baker, and we're picking up the conversation we started last week about how hope is a strategy. This week, remembering how hope is also a person and how much we need other people to remind us of that. Really, though, Lisa Jo, this conversation started for us 15 years ago. Can you believe it? I'm so glad you remembered that moment on your Michigan sofa when we were both holding our little baby boys. Okay, friends, get comfy. Here we go. Well, this is part two in our series on hope. So listeners, if you missed last week's conversation, I would say just hit pause, go back, start there. Because last week was all about this idea that the world maybe tells us hope is not a strategy. And guess what? Lisa, Joe, and I are saying, yes, it is. In fact, it is the only strategy. But it's the only strategy if it is hope, not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, but hope in a person, hope in someone outside of ourselves. And for us, our hope is absolutely um, rooted in Jesus Christ. So we're going to tell some more stories about that this week, what it means to have hope in a person. And Lisa Joe, I'm going to share something here. I know I've shared something similar on the podcast before, so bear with me, readers, if this sounds familiar. I am doing that um, middle-aged woman thing because <laughs> I'm a middle-aged woman who tells the same stories over and over to my kids, but I feel like that is my prerogative. They are good stories. Yes, they, they are, are worth are. repeating. Do it. <laughs> so I know I'm repeating myself here, but it's just this This experience is an anchor in my life, so I'm going to return to it, and you're going to return to it with me. But I've realized, um, you know, since that conversation we had, Lisa Joe, about hope that was so helpful to me personally, um, I've realized that it is like a muscle to be worked. It is something to practice, and we talked about um, hope as hopefulness, you know, as like an active posture. And I realized that it is it's a imagine it, it's it's a way of seeing the world that I actually practice as a reader. So as a reader of books and a reader of stories, I am regularly finding myself in fictional worlds where it seems that all hope is lost, where it seems as if the story cannot come together, the puzzle cannot be solved, the the broken relationship cannot be repaired. I mean, you name it, the things right. that we live, you know, vicariously through our stories. Um, I'm sure you have, uh, you know, you have examples of that in books and and TV shows and movies as well. This is like the really amazing thing about storytelling. So I realized that constantly (laughs) in in a realm where the stakes are low, so not my own life, (laughs) not my future, not my children's future, not my fears about, you know, my own self, I am sort of practicing this way of um, hoping through the stories I'm reading. So what I mean is that I will often, you know, that moment where you, um, you're you at maybe a cliffhanger or you're at a point of like where you just cannot imagine how things will be resolved and you're feeling a little worried and nervous and you want to keep going, but it's like 10 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. right? Okay, sometimes maybe you just keep going, but sometimes I just I have to put the book aside. And then what I find myself doing is just lying there ruminating like, well, maybe it'll get resolved like this, or maybe it'll look like this, or maybe it'll look like that. But what I find myself doing is realizing, oh my gosh, 
There's so much I don't know. There are almost infinite possibilities for how this story can resolve in some good or hopeful way. And right now, I'm just putting my trust in that author. I'm putting my trust in that storyteller that they are telling a good story. I'm along for the ride. And I have to tell myself that or I can't go to sleep. Otherwise, I'm just worried. Like, what what is happening? What's going to happen? Right? And that's like a totally low stakes, you know, way of acting this out. But I realized that that like imaginative practice that I have exercised through art, through, you know, books, through reading, through films and so on, actually serves me well when I'm thinking about my own life. Because when we're, we're faced with hard situations, we're trying to feel out the contours of our hope, our imaginations come into play. And sometimes for ill, when we think about our fears, our doubts, what this disaster could happen, this terrible thing could happen, but also in the opposite direction as we think, okay, well, this plan didn't work out. This didn't happen how I thought, but well, I guess it could still work out in this way, or I guess something good can come over here, or we're sort of, we just sort of become aware of all the possibilities for good stories if we're in the hands of a good storyteller. So I guess my question for us today as we tell some of our own stories is, am I in the hands of a good storyteller? And a great thing about being middle-aged is that I can say I, I am. Yes, there's so much that is still to be lived, still unresolved, but I can look back and tell a number of stories where it's clear that all along I've been held by a trustworthy, good, loving storyteller. Mm, which is hard sometimes to believe when we live yeah. really difficult stories. Yes. Yeah. I like last week how we ended on this idea of on the days where it's hard for us to have hope that somebody else is willing to stand in our stead and hold on for us. You know, if you have listened to last week's conversation, you know that the Hebrew word for hope is actually tikva, which is also the noun for rope. And so sometimes I think about how it's as if you're holding on to a rope and your arms get tired. And so somebody else says, just sit down and take a break and I'll hold on for you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. we, we need that in our lives. And this last year has been such a strange one for our family, um, walking through some difficult uh, stories related to cancer. And not only in our family, but in some of our really dear friends. And I have a story that started, you know, 18 years ago. When I was getting done high school, my brother Joshua was just a few years behind me and he had a best friend and his name is James. And we've all known each other since we were that age. I remember, you know, having a crush on him, having him having a crush on me as you do with like your your siblings' friends and then us growing up and me marrying Pete and James was at our wedding and gave one of the endless speeches that always happens at <laughs> South African weddings. And I remember James getting married and his wife, Anel, and how they grew up in the theater business the way Joshua and Luke, my brothers, were in theater and movies and producing. And all of them had these big dreams for what they wanted to do with their stories and lives. And James and Anel actually moved to the States and relocated to Hollywood to act and had a lot of success in acting. And then right after James had had a big break in a movie with Keanu Reeves, he ended up being diagnosed not just with cancer, but with tongue cancer, which is just 
unbelievable to wrap your mind around that someone who feels called to be an actor would be afflicted with cancer in his primary organ for being an actor. And then what are the chances that two best friends would both now walk out a journey through cancer? And it starts to feel like the storyteller is a little sketchy in situations like that. And it is real difficult to make sense of it all. And I won't even try and, you know, linger around these very highfalutin ideas about suffering and what it's supposed to be for us, because I'm just going to stay here on the ground floor where suffering is really hard and you feel like it's hard to trust the narrator and you feel frustrated. And guess what? You're allowed. Like that is the beauty of the book of Psalms. (laughs) You are allowed to wail and lament and ask, why does this happen? It's why we have books like Lamentations and Job. You're allowed to ask questions of the storyteller. I think that's so wonderful. And that's what you and I love about literature too. Like we like to ask, is this a trustworthy narrator? Do we like where the story is going? Do we agree with this plot twist? How wonderful to have a God that allows us, not only allows, invites, encourages us to ask questions. And I've often thought about Thomas, talked about him here on the podcast before, doubting Thomas, who comes to Jesus, you know, and he has said he's not going to believe unless he can see for himself. And Jesus does not say to him, I told you so, I was alive. (laughs) He calls him his friend and lets him look. And then later on, there's this wonderful passage we're all really familiar with, where Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. But what you don't realize is that answer Jesus gives, I had not realized, is actually precipitated on a question asked by Thomas again. So Jesus is at that time where he has been raised from the dead again. He's telling his disciples how he's going home to his father to make a way for them. And then he says to them, I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact scripture in front of me. Essentially, like, if you knew the Father, you know, you know, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to make a way for you. And he's comforting them. And then I love Thomas because he goes, I I don't know where you're going. I don't know the way. Like, what is the way? It's like, you know, and he's so sad. And he's, he's like, I don't, I don't know the way. And then Jesus says to him, Thomas, like, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. But Jesus is answering that really vulnerable question of, I I don't know where you're going, and I don't know the way, and help me. And it has meant a lot to me and my family and our good friends as we just vulnerably have days where we say to each other, "I, I don't know the way. Like, I don't know where this is going, but I do know Christ. And and so, if trusting Christ has 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 been somehow enough. And so, I had this great conversation with James's wife, Anel, this past week, where we were talking about just his experiences, and um, she was sharing intimately some just the crazy levels of difficultness. And and then she said to me, "Just so great talking to you, Lisa Joe. Like, how can we pray for you guys? Because we've gotten to a point where we honestly don't even know what to pray for ourselves anymore. So it would just be a relief to pray for you." Mm-hmm. Mm. And 
man, that has stuck with me so much because that feels to me like a concrete example of what it means to hold hope for somebody else. It's hard to hold it for yourself. It's hard to keep believing it. But the act of prayerfully bringing requests, please, your requests for directions, you know, which is the way, Lord, for somebody else really does feel like that's what it looks like to hold on to the rope for someone else who's tired to say, how can I pray for you? I, I can't even pray for myself anymore. It's such a relief to pray for somebody else. And I'd never heard someone say that before, that their situation is so bad that they'd rather pray for somebody else. That, that therein lay actual tangible hope for them. Uh, there's something in there that, that I think we can unpack when it comes to this idea that hope is a person, hope is a body, hope is a community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And hope is a wounded, scarred body, yeah. as you point out, yes. which I think is, is at the crux of it, right? Because, um, our hope isn't only in, and it is, but it isn't only in the ancient of days, this big, big idea of God on a throne, Christ victorious. Like it, it is that grand picture of um, where our hope resides, but also this very small picture of, you know, a human man who knew suffering was acquainted with grief. I mean, that phrase right there, acquainted with grief. Can I tell you the comfort <laughs> I, I have, I felt just in that phrase, like, oh, my Lord was acquainted with grief. So, He knows, He knows, He has felt it too. Um, and that, that's, that's where my hope is, not in, um, you know, someone who's too big, too strong, too beyond to understand what it's like to be small and vulnerable and hungry and sad and tired, um, but someone who, who understands absolutely. So, it's weird. I almost feel like sometimes I need, in order to, in order to hold on to this hope, I need, like, on the one hand, a much bigger, broader timeline something that moves beyond how I'm feeling this week or this year, something that is, um, well, more eternal, you know, just bigger in its scope. And at the same time, like so much smaller, so much more focused so that the, the migraine I have today or the allergies I'm suffering with right now or, you know, whatever, like the, the little ordinary hardship that is just dragging me down maybe it's schedule overwhelm, right? Like sometimes it's those the big suffering that takes us there. And sometimes it's just like those days that you feel like you're slogging through molasses or something, like you just can't get momentum, right? And to know that like, in so many ways, like that was the life that he experienced and he lived. Like, like just, you know, crowds and people bothering him and getting tired and trying to find the next meal. Like that's so much of what, what it looks like when you read about his ministry. So, a couple, was it last Sunday or I guess maybe it was, I think it was last Sunday. I've, I've lost, maybe two Sundays ago, I've lost track a little bit. But um, in our church, we follow the lectionary readings, which means that we, like many Christians, would have read um, the the kind of strange scripture in Luke where Jesus uh, tells a parable about a fig tree and like the man who planted it comes back and like for two years, there's no fruit on this fig tree. And he's like, oh, we, 
get rid of this fig tree. And, um, and then the, the one caring for the fig tree is like, well, let me like scratch around the roots and like feed it and take care of it. And like one more year, let's, let's just see what happens in one more year. And, uh, I realized after that, that Jesus is that fig tree because Jesus in three, you know, for two years of ministry, what did it amount to? Some miracles, some wandering around, some followers, certainly some highs, uh, but a lot of lows as well, like just being chased around, um, being dragged before authorities, kind of being on the run, <laughs> going back and being rejected by your hometown, right? It didn't look like a whole lot. And now we're two years in. But what happens after three years? He bears fruit. Well, what, what does that look like? It looks like laying down his life. It's so paradoxical. It's so the opposite <laughs> of what we think, you know, how we think the story should go. And yet it's so beautifully powerful that it actually gives me hope that my own life experience that can just feel like a whole lot of nothing capped with something really traumatic and awful <laughs> capped with a few moments of like, okay, that was pretty great. But now we're, be- you know, like just right. the ordinary, like, ah, you know, where you say, really, this is it. Yes, this is it. And it right. keeps going, you know, moments of joy. Absolutely. But interspersed with a whole lot of like paperwork and just getting up and doing the same thing again and not necessarily feeling like you're getting anywhere except older every year. (laughs) Right? This is life. And then the thing, but like, no, I'm on that way too of fruitfulness. If I go on, you know, walking this way and and following this Lord. And so, I don't know, it's weird the hope I take in like the smallness of the story or the ordinariness of it, the the dusty parts, the the parts where Jesus is, you know, sharing and just our weariness or, you know, it's not, um, I don't know, my, our hope isn't in a way of someone who was victorious in the ways that we think of that, successful, healthy, wealthy, popular. Uh, it, it isn't that story and he's not that person. And okay, what a relief. Yes. So now I look around at my totally ordinary life and I say, okay, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, like Thomas is like, I don't know the way. I'm like, okay, I guess this is the way. <laughs> you're on the Just, way. If you know Jesus, you're on the way. Chrissy, <laughs> I am so um, both surprised and not at all that this conversation we just had, this what you just shared about how you take comfort in Christ's smallness and not the bigness, is literally a conversation we started 14 years ago. Do you right. remember when this was? In Michigan, Micah had just been born. You mm. came out from Chicago to visit us. Yeah. You know, Lily and Thad were so tiny still. Um and I remember having just discovered at the time, Chris Tomlin and Louis Giglio had done the indescribable tour where they they drew a lot of lessons from space. It was like on the vastness of God, the bigness, the majesty. Do you know where I'm going with this? And I remember sitting on the sofa, I had tiny baby Micah with me and just saying to you, it's so amazing. You have to watch this video. You have to hear them teach about how huge God is. It's just like, it's blowing my mind. I can't believe about the cosmos and the universe and how God is like in all of this. Do you remember what you said back to me and what you were going through at the time? 
I, I remember this encounter absolutely. And I remember the video. I'm I'm there with you on the couch. I'm holding little Thaddeus. But no, I don't remember what I <laughs> you said. You said what you just said now. You said to me, yes, I I totally appreciate that. But what I have needed from God, Lisa Joe, for years, his bigness was easy for me to grasp. What I couldn't believe is that he could actually be small enough to be interested and invested in the small moments of my life. That's where I struggled. I could believe in a big God. What I couldn't believe in was a small God. And Christy shared on the podcast before her journey of her struggle with infertility, and you used that, and you said when I was walking through that, I couldn't conceive God could be small enough to come into that story and into my uterus and my DNA and so tiny to care about those rhythms I was walking. And how interesting uh, that like 14 yes. years later, you're essentially <laughs> saying the same thing. <laughs> so beautiful. It, it is. It is. I mean, I could say on the one hand, Christy, have you not made any progress? And on the other hand, that's exactly the point. Right. <laughs> it's not a, It's not about some idea I might have about progress, but about continually like mm-hmm. moving in that direction of of his smallness. You're right. I, I had forgotten that connection, and I am. I'm taken back to that time in my life where, you know, I was struggling so much. I was wanting to have children. It wasn't happening, and and like there was a logical part of my brain that was telling me. In the scheme of things, like this does not matter that much. Like on a cosmic scale, one woman who wants to have a baby, like it, it's pretty small. <laughs> like it's a big desire to me. It's a big ache to me. And it's also a grain of sand. And I was really wrestling with that. And I'm going to church and singing songs about God's love and about hope and realizing, okay, yes, technically, I think I believe these things, but what good are they for me right now? Like, what what hope do I actually have? Because I knew enough to know, like, I don't know if God is going to give me children. That's what I want. That's what I imagine as a good. And and I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's you know what what God is going to do in my life. So what does it mean to to have hope in those moments? I could tell you. For me, I think I think it meant like it meant just it, it meant some really desperate moments where all i all i had was that grip on on the rope and it wasn't any longer a grip on what i wanted to have happen it wasn't uh, a grip on like here's my prayer request for a child it was my my grip literally like on the hem of his robe saying like i'm miserable and you see me and you care and like that was that was enough. I I was bare, I was still miserable, <laughs> but I was seen and he was near. And I tell you, you don't forget you don't forget moments like that. You know, that that kind of presence, um, the memory of it is in a way it becomes it becomes the rope you go on holding onto, even in moments now where I may not feel that presence quite so viscerally um, because I don't need to, because I'm, you know, I'm functioning in ways back then I was like barely functioning, you know, like really just barely able to get up and keep going because I was in so much pain. You know, I'm not in that kind of pain today, but I I remember that nearness. um, And I know sitting here right now, I know if I go back to that 
that kind of place where I feel like I've got nothing except pain, he will be there because that's where he lives. He li- he lives there. He never leaves that place. <laughs> he lives there. That's his home. You know, he made it his home when he came to live with us. And so, um, I'm not there today, but if I go back there tomorrow, guess who I will find and how good it will be to be that close to him, um, even though it will be painful. So, I, I don't know. It's... Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. I'm glad you reminded me because like those with the stories and the experiences that are like back there or deep down that now are like the foundation you're standing on, the rope you're holding, even if you don't recall them to mind every day. But that's the reason. It's like the gift of those um, those special moments. So if we believe hope is a person, then part of that is like knowing other people who know that person. Because Right. Yeah. It's like they, they have memories of him. They tell stories. They say how he showed up for them. And it's why community is so key. It's why I think that story I'm thinking of now, because for me, the last six months have felt like an like this sharp cut of pain that I haven't felt in a really long time and a kind of sadness that feels like hard to breathe through. It It's felt like trying to breathe through labor pains like how do you keep breathing through something that is so painful and um and so i've been holding on to people who are holding on to christ if that makes sense like those people have been an anchor for me and this past week when i went into dc to be with a friend who has just had a mastectomy we've known each other a very long time and another friend came out from Spain actually for the week um, and we all gathered together the night before I messaged my friend who came from Spain and she's American but she's posted with the US State Department in Spain she came for a week she has a family too and I said I I feel like such a bad friend I live 45 minutes away (laughs) you traveled from Europe (laughs) wow what's wrong with me like why am I not able to be more present and and I said, I just, I'm struggling so much to hold on to so many painful things at once. I, I I can't catch my breath. And so I just feel grateful to come and be with you guys tomorrow. But I also have this narrative, like, you're such a loser. <laughs> like, why aren't you doing more for your friend who's suffering in a much more severe way? And uh, Maureen just said to me, no, Lisa Joe, like, that's not how it works. Like, the reason we are friends is that everybody has different seasons where we can carry different loads for each other. And she said, I'm here now and I can carry the heavier load and I'm so glad I can. And so to be with them was to be so known, like, so deeply known and seen because we've all walked through many seasons together. And it was funny. We went out for lunch to this awesome Pakistani restaurant. Oh, such good food. And at the end, we were kind of fighting over who's going to pay the bill. And uh, Maureen said to Amy and I, listen, no, it's like that scene from Notting Hill to do with the brownie. Like the person who had the worst story got to eat the brownie. Uh, And she's like, you too need to eat the brownie. I will pay. (laughs) Oh, and that's I so great. And I think it's it really has for me hope is the person of Christ, but it's also the people who know him. And I need those mm-hmm. people. I need to hold on to them and I need their stories about him. And I need to remember what it was like for them when they had really hard moments because I really think that's what the disciples did. It's why they wrote it down. It's why they kept gathering together. They held on to each other's stories because it was a way of holding on to Christ still. And that 
he is sitting in that place of pain and suffering. Like he is, he is there. He does hold us, but he's also given us community who, who hold us when it's difficult mm-hmm. to do that. Right, alone. right, right. Those friends who don't say like, well, look on the bright side or remember who Jesus is or like, you don't need to feel this way right. or like consider eternity or all the things that like, you know, are true. Right, right. Certainly, you know. Um, But those friends who say, like, yeah, everything you're feeling, yeah, that's real. Right. And, but they're not in the, they're they're with you, but they aren't buried, maybe the way you're buried by it. And so they can just be near, but they bring that hope near, you know, just in their presence. Um, But they can do that without telling you, you should be feeling something different. You should be (laughs) behaving differently. They just show up with, you know, hope in their hands and, right. and they just hold it. They don't even like force it on no. you. Like here, take some hope. <laughs> right. It's a kind of a maturity to just hold space for that kind of grief yeah. or sorrow or whatever it is. And, you know, <laughs> sketching them up on the last year, I shared with them and you know the story how I went out to speaking event last year, literally in the middle of like getting news after news of diagnosis of friends and family. And it was just a very shocking 10 days to two weeks. And in the middle of that, I went out to a speaking event and it was this big speaking event. It was at an outdoor, um, beautiful pavilion, but right literally like minutes before I was supposed to take the stage, this massive like tornado swept through with like tornado level winds, like the whole, the pylons were getting sucked up. Like they canceled the event. People were being evacuated out of the area. It was insane. I've never experienced anything like that. And so we left and drove through this torrential rain and winds. It was really scary. All the electricity was out for miles and miles. And we arrived at the house of the host of this event. And right as we arrived, she then got a phone call from one of her team saying not only had the event had to shut down because of this tornado, but the police had then reached out to them as well and said, if there's anybody else in the area, you need to evacuate now because, I'm not kidding, there was an active shooter as well. And <gasps> oh so my, my friends and I now talk about, man, active shooter in a tornado. Like that <laughs> is what you are going through right now. That's like the metaphor for so many things where you can't make it better. Like all you can do right. is recognize how terrible it is for someone. And everybody has days like that. And if you don't, you know somebody who does right now. And I think the beauty of being believers is being willing to say to that person here, I'm going to hold your hand so you don't blow away. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, that's gorgeous. And I like just knowing, and, and this goes back to something, um, I think you said it in the last episode, actually, Lisa Joe, about just your your need and desire to know that there's some meaning in it, that it's not meaningless, it's not chaotic. I think that is some of the substance of the hope that I find in in Jesus is knowing that that if we're suffering, if we're walking through those seasons, that we're doing it right. We're not doing it wrong. Like 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 this is what he did too. He weeped with um, you know, he weeped over Lazarus's death. He like he entered into people's pain and um you know, didn't run away from it. And we're like like this is 
you know, if we're suffering, if things are hard, um, it's not a sign of failure. It's actually um, an opportunity for faithfulness. And and, and it's hard. Like, it, it's all those things. It, it just is. But it's not what it is not is um, chaos, failure, chaos, yeah. an obstacle, you know, like God's like, oh, no, no, I can't use her. Like, right, she's right. Because she's in the fetal position. Like. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think we would be remiss if we did not go to like the verse about suffering and hope, which is in Romans 5, verse 3 to 5. I've never quite made this connection before, but when you were talking about that suffering and hope, I mean, the verse says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and it's character that produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Like how interesting that hope is actually a byproduct of the beginning of it is suffering and then suffering I think of it like I'm from South Africa, so I think about diamonds, right? So you mine it out and it initially it's just like a heap of coal, like suffering is awful, but it produces endurance, which produces character, which ultimately produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, does not put us to shame. Like how wonderful, like, because I think that's part of my fear when I think about hope. I've said this to you many times over the years. I don't like hope. I find it to be a deeply risky <laughs> virtue because it's, it feels like a gamble to me a lot of the time, like because I'm, I'm hoping this will work out or God will come through or whatever. But here is the promise from Christ's lips, like hope will not put you to shame. Like I love that it phrases it that way. Some translations talk about how it won't disappoint you, but I much prefer this, <laughs> this version of it. Yeah. But hope does not put us to shame because shame yeah. implies like a degree of embarrassment, like public mm -hmm. embarrassment. Like I trusted you, Lord, and you let me down. Like I put my hope in you and you humiliated me publicly, which is, I think, often what Satan is trying to tell us is happening, right? Like, you can't trust him. Oh, look what happened. Like, you're in the fetal position. You're a disaster. God can't be trusted. He let you down again. And yet the truth of the matter is that clearly there are two narratives happening. Like, there is a temporal, earthly, physical narrative, right? Where someone might be in front of your very eyes, like diminishing because of a disease. Like, I think about my mom when she, she fought leukemia for two years. And in those last two weeks of her life, like, she was a tiny shrunken little person. But then I really believe there is an internal perspective where God and the angels were seeing my mom become bigger and bigger, like a lion, mm -hmm. like a warrior, mm -hmm. like a champion, like a hero. Like I, I often think of a painting where I could picture her tiny frame, but then superimposed on it, like this shadow, right, of a warrior, of, of everything you can think of that's mighty in your mind, a roaring lion, there does seem to be an inverse relationship between suffering and hope and then who we are becoming in Christ. Um, and, and I just, the only way through is through. Like, I feel like the only thing that forges us into that, as much as I don't like this, is suffering. I, I can't, I don't see people being blessed into better versions of themselves. Like, I only see that going the other way. Like, people who come into lots of wealth or opportunity or success or fame. Like, every story out there is how terrible, how detrimental those things were for them. But all the tearjerker stories are the people who've had terrible experiences <laughs> and then have, like, come out the other side, like, 
these champions that might be in tiny shrunken bodies and maybe some of them have even passed away, but the legacy or how their family have been formed or their children, like it is an eternal kind of glory that I I think we just completely don't have the eyes for most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that verse really brings our whole, these whole, these two conversations full circle because, you know, we started with the world's way of like putting all your, your hope in your goal setting and your planning and your ability to execute and your vision board and your manifesting and those things, right? But imagine all, like think back to if you set goals or you made a vision board and, and again, we always say this, we're not saying those things are bad or wrong. Absolutely. It's just, you know, proper perspective. Um, but think back to like the goals you may have set or the plans. Just, I look at my own life, the plans I made for the year 2020. <laughs> right. right? Like if anything puts me to shame, it's right. my utter ability to accomplish anything that right. I said I was going to do or accomplish in the year 2020. And that is just a sort of humorous example of like our lives, our lives writ large, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's in some sense, always 2020 in, in right. terms of like how much control I actually have in what, um, you know, what I'm going to be doing. So if anything could potentially put us to shame, it's our own plans and our own pride. And the thing that I love that in that verse, the thing that that will not put us to shame is if we put our hope in Jesus, we will not be put to shame. Like that is actually the bravest, smartest, wisest, healthiest option on the table, essentially, is to say, I've got nothing. Every year might as well be 2020, but I've got you. My hope is on you. I'm betting everything on you, um, and I will not be put to shame. Right. And it's interesting because in order to give us that promise, in order to make that commitment, Christ allowed himself to be shamed, right? Like his death on a cross was such a shameful experience in every possible way. And yeah. yet, um, he took that on in order that we wouldn't be shamed. He covered mm-hmm. us. Like, he came and took mm-hmm. our shame and our questions and our grief mm-hmm. and our suffering. Like, all of that, he he took it. So, there's there's nothing that we can walk through that he can't say, yes, I know. And I think that's deeply comforting to have a God who actually knows. Like, he, <laughs> he actually, you know, can, can relate to our most painful questions, our saddest moments, our our loneliest moments. He's a God, too, who felt lonely and afraid and forgotten. Um, but how beautiful that he he really does know. And, and so because of that, because he was willing to be shamed, we don't have to be. So therein, <laughs> therein <laughs> ends the conversation so far today, at least for this small part of the journey, which I think is yeah. ongoing. I think um, for those of you listening who are in really hard places right now, we just want to let you know you're you're not alone in that journey and that um, that your suffering is not in vain and your endurance is not in vain. Cause sometimes I feel that way too. Like I'm just so tired of enduring. Like, can it just be over now? <laughs> like, can we just be done? But in a weird way, your endurance is actually producing character. And, and that is what is producing hope. Hope doesn't just come out of a vacuum. It's not wishful thinking. It's forged in the fire and it's uh, a beautiful thing. And I was looking at a translation here in the message version where they actually, dis- when they're talking about developing 
patience or hope. What's interesting is they they actually use this translation for this virtue. They call it, um, let me just back up and read the whole line. It says, there's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, Mm -hmm. keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is actually it. Like it's, we are being forged. Like God is forging us into something sharp and strong and true and beautiful so we can stand with sword in hand, waiting, expecting Mm -hmm. for what God will do next. The the opposite of hopelessness. Hopelessness is when you stop mm-hmm. looking for what's coming, right? And right. you say nothing right. is coming. Mm-hmm. No rescue is coming to go back to right. your beginning descriptor of us as Christians who we glory in the fact that we need to be rescued. But in this translation where it talks about expectancy, alert expectancy for whatever God will do next, that implies total hope that next is coming, that God is bringing next to us. And not only that, that he has prepared us for it. And that, my friends, that is a story and a storyteller that I can get behind and tell my kids about. Oh, I love it. That hope is fundamental, fundamentally my declaration that it will not always be like this, that I know something good is coming and to feel now in this moment some of the joy of that through anticipation that that is hope that's a good gift thanks for being part of the conversation with us today friends and we love when you chime in on instagram or facebook and tag us let us know what you thought and it really means a lot if you spread the messages of these conversations i think in these days there are a lot of folks who could be reminded that hope isn't just wishful thinking so we sure do appreciate anytime you share the podcast or tag us on social media i am at lisa joe baker and i am at christy purifoy 